quick counting fans, followers, blog subscribers like bottle caps. Think instead about what you're hoping to achieve with and through the community that actually cares about what you're doing. How can you and that community come together to embrace the void? you to exist anywhere. I want everyone corrupt. Leaves from the vine falling so slow. Sometimes, Master, it is difficult for meatbags to step back and gain some perspective on death and its importance in their insignificant lives. I don't know if I'm up for this. I'm so emotional. I can barely think straight. Great. Use that. Embrace the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 175 of Embrace the Void, where our letters remain open for business. I am your host, Aaron, and this week I'm excited to promote some philosophical community organizing. So, let's make with the digital love. Life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... something. My guests this week are Jennifer Foster, a philosophy PhD student at the University of Southern California, and Cassie Finley, a philosophy PhD student at the University of Iowa. They've come together to organize the Cogwito Philosophy Workshop Series. Jennifer and Cassie, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello. Hi, void. (laughs) Thanks so much for having us. Thank you all so much for coming on. No, I really appreciate it. I always love to throw out boosting as much as possible to these kinds of community organizing activities that y'all are engaged in. So I was excited and I appreciate y'all taking the time to come on and chat about it some. So before we get into the Cogwito or possibly Cogtwito series, we can discuss the name a little bit there. Do you want to let folks know a little bit about yourselves, sort of what you're bringing to the table, philosophically speaking, interests, backgrounds, that sort of thing. Jen, maybe do you want to start first? Yeah, sure. So yeah, I'm a USC student. I work mainly at the intersection of social epistemology, uh, virtue theory, and political and social philosophy. So my dissertation project is Um, on issues related to belief formation and belief suspension and the ethics of belief and whether or not Mm. we can have duties to believe. And I sort of try to motivate that idea by thinking about uh, the prospect of doxastic courage and cowardice or courage Mm. and cowardice in belief formation. That's really interesting. Yeah, thanks. I hope so. It's, It's a pretty new project, but I'm pretty excited about it. And then I've got some sort of additional interests in the philosophy of language, especially uh, like derogatory expressions like slurs and um, rolls. Mm. <laughs> Do you have a particular hot take yet on whether we have a moral obligation to believe certain things? 
think we do. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anything in particular? Any uh, particular belief? Two plus two equals four or something like that? Um, I think that there are certain situations where if the reasons why you're not believing are having to do more with considerations of fear that you have about the mm-hmm. outcomes um, as opposed to just looking at the evidence. For example, you're mm-hmm. afraid of taking a side in a, a dispute between people you care about because it you know risks compromising a relationship with one of them, even though intuitively there really is a morally right side to, to come down on. I think that that can be a kind of cowardice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm fully with you on that. So I appreciate having my confirmations, uh, <laughs> my biases confirmed on that one. Uh, Cassie, what about you? What's your background? Yeah, so I came into grad school with pretty strong interest in philosophy of mind and ancient philosophy, specifically Aristotle. And you know, I I was focusing quite a bit on the anima and kind of contemporary applications of Aristotelian psychology. But I've had a bit of a crisis these past couple of months um, after taking an ethics of algorithms class and suddenly a lot of things have shifted so I'm I'm really focusing now on the intersection between you know Aristotelian virtue ethics um, ethics of algorithms or AI ethics and then public philosophy as well I got involved in um, the Iowa Lyceum we have like a high school philosophy camp that we run every summer so looking at ways that I can really tie those those three interests together in, you know, engaging young folks and the public in virtue ethics and applying that to mm-hmm. uh, the way we approach algorithms and uh, discrimination in AI and things like that. Sounds super great. I'm a big fan of, of the use of virtue theory in discussing AI ethics and the way that uh, technology could be shaping uh, our, our psychology, our, our understanding of the world. So that sounds really great. So what's then, so I always want to ask when I have uh, superhero philosopher team-ups on the show, uh, what's the origin story? Marvel has ruined my brain, so I need to know exactly how y'all ended up on this team together. How did y'all come together and decide you wanted to do a philosophy uh, Twitter conference? Kathy, I guess I'll take the lead on this for, for now. This was sort of born out of uh, one COVID um, but to a sort of throwaway idea that I had had, um, I sort of got really excited all of a sudden by the idea of, you know, all of us on Twitter who've been keeping each other company um, during quarantine, actually being able to engage with each other's work philosophically in a more serious um, and like deep way than, um, you know, the superficial or otherwise pretty social interactions that we are restricted to on Twitter. So I tweeted out in like all caps, like, what if I organized a Twitter, a philosophy Twitter conference? Mm-hmm. Sort of, uh, you know, serious, but also like kind of just impulse tweeted it. And then Cassie replied, she's like, hell yes, let's do it. And then she DM me and was like, hey, I'm so serious about this. If you want to like organize this, I, I'm like down to help. And I was like, all right, let's do it. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, no, I think it's like like all good things on philosophy Twitter. It begins sort of half ironically and then moves slightly towards unironically, I suppose. <laughs> exactly. Um, so so it was, uh, as you say, kind of born of uh, COVID survival cope. And I, actually, I'm curious. Let me just ask, how, how have you all been doing? I think uh, it's, it's an important question at this point to step back and, and sort of check in with folks sometimes in these conversations about sort of what is your educational experience been like during the life and times of COVID? Um, Cassie, maybe do you want to start? 
yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely been a really strange time, both personally and globally, obviously. But I mean, I, you know, found out I have ADHD and that happened in March. And then we're online suddenly and, you know, this is only my second year. So I wasn't very far into grad school when this all happened. So it was definitely a big adjustment going from moving to a new state across the country, you know, living in an apartment by myself for the first time, and then six months later, really, really by myself for the first time. But, you know, after after summer, I, I think that I sort of buckled down and it's ended up being kind of a good thing, as horrible mm-hmm. as it is to say, but, you know, I it's nice to be able to just log onto a computer and You know, sometimes it's hard to get up in the mornings because of the stress of the world, and it's a lot easier to only get up and log into a computer than it is to shower and get dressed and go to campus and have to talk to people a lot. Um, So my introverted self, I think, is is doing all right. Um, But but of course, it's it's definitely difficult to continue feeling like. The world is moving. Mm-hmm. It feels like each day has been the same for the last year now. So, feeling like we've accomplished anything, or you know, even wasting time doesn't really feel like time is moving. So it's been it's been a really mm-hmm. bizarre experience. But you know, I've found that Twitter has been strangely such a fantastic outlet. Um, talking to other people, also in grad school, also having similar experiences, has really made the world feel bigger than. It physically is right now yeah i do find that i i have found a lot of value in those interactions online but that there is also this kind of there is only one day now and it's always the same day and it's just very groundhoggy kind of feel has that been sort of your experience as well jen yeah the, the groundhog reference resonates with groundhog day re- reference resonates with me quite a lot um i'm so glad that you brought up adhd cassie because this is also something that I struggle with and it's been like I was, you know, when you asked the question I was like oh do I do I talk about that or not mm-hmm. um and it I think in some ways quarantine is just like the person with ADHD's like worst nightmare um in terms of like not mm-hmm. having structure and not having a you know the daily interactions that remind you to do stuff or uh, you know create the sort of natural um, peaks and valleys of a workflow that a lot of people with ADHD describe their life as like. And so that, that's been quite difficult. Um, especially Cassie, I don't know what your place in the, your program is at the moment, but I was on fellowship this last year and that was even (laughs) worse when it came to not having structure. Hmm. Um, so that was something that I really needed to work with my advisors and myself to, sort of power through but like Cassie said it's been really remarkable how help and you know you also seem to to agree with it's just been so wonderful having Twitter as an outlet for like solidarity but also just like a philosophical outlet I think this is one of the things that really motivated the idea behind the conference is that you know it's not an accident that all of us are friends on Twitter Um, part Mm -hmm. of it is because we just are all terminally online and we get each other's jokes but um, part of it is because, you know, we are interested in a lot of the same questions. And when you don't get to hang out in the grad lounge or, you know, run into people on campus, 
uh, it's nice to have this mm-hmm. as a, another way of sort of casually engaging um, with like-minded people. Yeah, I'm sympathetic to that, and it's it's tricky for me because I'm not diagnosed with ADD, but I certainly have experienced uh, a much greater difficulty in concentrating since all of this has happened. Uh, you know, I ha- I've experienced that kind of COVID brain that I think lots of folks have uh, been dealing with, and it's made it just very, very hard for me to to not get constantly sucked back into things like Twitter. So I feel like while I am getting a lot of benefit from Twitter, I also am very keenly aware of my kind of addictive checking of things like Twitter and Facebook that I wish I could stop doing a little bit more so I could focus a little bit more on other activities. So yeah, I I guess I I had a question for you down the line, but since we brought this up now, sort of broadly speaking, do you think about philosophy Twitter as generally being a force for good in the world? Or do you feel like it, the the jury might still be out on whether this is merely neutral or potentially um, something harmful that we're all uh, distracting ourselves with while the world burns. What do you think, Cassie? Yeah, I mean, I go back and forth on this, and I had a big phase right before I came to grad school where I was aggressively digitally minimalist and trying to minimize all of my online presences and was trying to break my addiction to my phone and to social media and things like that. Um, And of course, that has not (laughs) lasted into grad school and especially not into quarantine. But, you know, I think that there is something unique to, at very least, philosophy Twitter that we... I don't know. It, it feels like a more equal platform than I've ever experienced in academia. You know, I hmm. have, I started this Aristotle Nicomachean ethics reading group and we had our first um, meeting this past week. And there were people from literally all over the world, people from Hong Kong, France, um, you know, across the country, Canada, mm-hmm. all over the place. And, you know, I had some people from Ivy Leagues, like professors from Ivy Leagues, DMing me on Twitter saying, hey, I'm interested in your reading group. And, you know, there's just not that opportunity to really interact with people without really kind of aggressive elitism, I think, in more formal contexts. Um, so, I mean, there is mm. some some downside, of course, as you've mentioned, to being terminally online and and constantly engaging in group chats and and having that kind of reinforced constant notifications um, making your brain happy. Mm-hmm. But, <laughs> I mean, I think that it's just kind of part of the times is how fast-paced everything is that there's not much to do about it, right? That, that we, it's sort of inevitable so trying to find the best possible way of engaging with them is is kind of the best option moving forward. Um, trying to be intentional with, all right, my notifications are from cool people on Twitter rather than fighting with people on Facebook or, you know, scrolling through mm-hmm. TikTok watching cat videos. Um, so I, I think that it's about uh-huh. where you're putting that attention since... I think it can be a really toxic approach to constantly berate yourself for how online you are. I think a lot of us feel a lot of mm. guilt for constantly checking our phones and things. So as you said, it's it's kind of an addiction at this, this point. So I'm kind of on board with not feeling guilty and instead trying to focus on the ways it can benefit us. 
that's that's a good point and i think you make a really good point about one of the positive features i tend to actually ultimately be pro twitter in that i don't think it's as much of a hellscape as people make it out to be or that like you can you can cater your twitter to be sort of somewhat less of a hellscape and i I say that obviously with the privilege of being a, a white male and all but um i do think that um, you can have meaningful interactions with folks, though, as we'll talk about in a second with y'all's project. I do agree that I think there are, uh, I think there are limits to what kinds of um, academic interactions you can have on Twitter to some extent. But the point that I thought you brought up that I think is really valuable is the the sort of leveling effect that Twitter seems to have, where it really does cut across a lot of sort of structured. Um, you know, uh, approaches where, where you feel like you have these hierarchies of power. Um, but at the same time, I do also think that it, it sometimes replicates different hierarchies of power, right? With who has the most followers and, and whose podcast has the most influence and what is their particular take on the culture war or something like that. And actually, I mean, let me ask you this, Jen, since you talk about um, sort of epistemic situations, I'm curious, would you say that Twitter is an environment that sort of you feel like promotes um, positive epistemic habits or harmful or does it just depend on the user do you think that's a great question um i okay the relative to maybe perhaps uh more ideal epistemic situations but um i mean if you're comparing it to things like facebook um sorry there's a siren outside um (laughs) live theater (laughs) yeah right um, I just think that there's something really powerful about the way that information can get disseminated on Twitter that makes it at least um, more potentially a force for good than other sorts of online platforms, um, especially insofar as like, some, like random people can end up seeing your, your tweets and show up in your mentions. Um, sometimes for for worse but sometimes for better um to be like no wait that's not that's not right that's not what they said or um actually have you looked at this article and on a place like facebook where your friend group is sort of highly moderated um by you and um as a result of that like who sees your post is highly moderated by you it's easy to get into a place where nobody sort of vocally disagrees with you and um Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, my roommate and colleague, Krista Peterson, who's, you know, a big voice on Flossy Twitter, and I are always joking about how Twitter is good because people will come and yell at you if you say bad things. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I think that's right. You're, you're, you're pro being canceled. You feel like it's a positive experience. <laughs> I mean, obviously there, I mean, it's, you know, mob mobbing on Twitter happens and it's awful mm-hmm. and cyberbullying happens, but the kind of way that, like, you know, people will actually call you out on Twitter and even, you know, um, you know, colleagues who are your friends on Facebook might not actually say anything on Facebook because the norms are different, but the norms on Twitter are very much like, Hmm. if you say something bad, I'm going to tell you you said something bad. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, Uh I think that that's it's it's a pro-dunking environment. (laughs) Of course. Yeah, right. I mean, all within limits um sometimes that can be intimidating and it can be silencing but i think it's far less silencing than some people would like to have us believe okay i think that's fair so 
Talk to me some about how you're trying to take the the soul of philosophy Twitter, its essence, and transform it into this this philosophy workshop series that you're doing. So the name, I, my understanding is there's a little bit of debate going on internally <laughs> about the actual way to pronounce the name Cogtweeto versus Cogweedo. Is that the, the two camps here? Well, there's also a camp <laughs> Which, of not yeah. pronouncing the G, um, so like the okay. Cogtweedo. So, yeah, uh-huh. the, the, the origin of that being the Cojito, um, I think, therefore, I am. And we mm-hmm. were like, oh, somebody, um, our friend and colleague on Twitter, Jonathan Flowers, suggested I tweet, therefore, I am, as the name for our conference. And mm-hmm. we were kind of running with that. And then, yeah, I was, it occurred to me that we could make a tweet pun on Cojito, um, mm-hmm. And then I went to go write it out, and I was like, I don't actually know how to spell this. <laughs> um. <laughs> no, I like it because it's it's an in joke, and it's sort of very messy and confusing, yeah. and, and so it, in that way, it does. It's like it does in many ways capture the essence of philosophy <laughs> Twitter. So I appreciate that, um, and it forces further explanation, which is always fun. Yeah, I remember there was a thread going where they were talking about making a twitter anthology like a philosophy twitter anthology or something and they were all going through thinking of names for this anthology and mm-hmm. they were fantastic and they were all you know this but unironically and you know I, I think we actually pulled some of them for the names of our workshops um because they were you know we have all of these inside jokes of um okay boomer uh is, is going to be our second workshop um title mm-hmm. and you know this this first one um, I don't know who needs to hear this, but I mean, if you're not on Twitter, that's not really going to make sense to you. Um, uh, but <laughs> you know, that, mm-hmm. that meme goes around so much at, that I think that it, it allows for some humor in, in that, that we all have this kind of shared warped philosophical sense of humor where we can mash up memes and make them ironic, as you've said, and, and also, you know, kind of embrace it as our identities. That it's like, yeah, no, we are mm-hmm. terminally online. We're incredibly ironic, and we have lots of things to say. So we just kind of word vomit it out constantly. And every once in a while, there's a good philosophy joke, or you know, a pretty intense <laughs> mm-hmm. thread about about Aristotle, or you know, conversations in philosophy. Now, that being said. <laughs> Right, like that being said, though, I don't want to give people the impression that these conferences wouldn't be open to folks who are not terminally online philosophy Twitter folks. I know a lot of folks who listen to the show are not necessarily heavy philosophy Twitter users, but from what I've seen of, of the content that you all are, are looking to present at these um, talks, my, my impression is that you don't need to be too steeped in the philosophy Twitter lore to still be able to engage with this material. Is that is that fairly accurate? Oh, for sure. Um, the the sort of Twitter-esque um, vibes of things are going to mostly be restricted to the names of our um, themes and whatever, but the actual talks we intend mm-hmm. fully to be, you know, full-blooded academic talks. Um, the Well, they're going to be diversified a little bit um, in terms of their structure and their register, but we very much are conceiving of this as an opportunity to really do academic philosophy um, just mm-hmm. within the context of people you know mostly from Twitter. 
as opposed to, you know, going to the APA or being um, restricted to your department. Yeah. No, I mean, I understand that someone who's built an entire podcast on just pulling people from philosophy Twitter, I'm <laughs> right. very sympathetic to your model. Um, why don't you, you mentioned the sort of structure. Why don't we talk through a little bit, sort of give us a day in the life of what your events are going to look like. I know your first one's coming up on January 30th. How are the, what are the different structures of the formats and what are you hoping to get from those different formats? Yeah, I, I can take um, this Maybe one. Cassie want to explain? Yeah. Yeah. So part of our origin story too was that, you know, Jen and I ended up FaceTiming and I, I think we planned on about 30 minutes and then talked for, I think, three and a half hours uh, <laughs> because, you know, philosophers. Uh, being philosophers, yes, and, and just being really enthusiastic about the project. And, you know, we were trying to figure out what do we want out of this? And, you know, a big part, as we've talked about, of philosophy Twitter is the accessibility that you can engage mm -hmm. with top scholars um, and they can engage back and, our idea is, well, there's not really any reason for conferences to be as exclusive as they are. You know, why, why can't independent scholars or folks that are just interested in philosophy come to these, especially if they're over Zoom, right? And Zoom conferences have been going for nine months now and going kind of without a hitch. Um, and so mm -hmm. behind that, we said, okay, well, we also want it to benefit the people who are speaking. And a lot of times, you know, conferences, a lot of the good that comes out of conferences can be the conversations you have afterwards that are more casual. So we were thinking, okay, mm -hmm. do we want to do a formal APA style, you know, submit a paper, you give a talk, you get a commentator, you get questions, and that's, you know, a pretty formal experience. Or do we want it to be a workshop or a colloquium kind of series? Do we have a keynote? How, how do we want to do this? And we ultimately decided, okay, let's, let's do a series of these um, because that we can decide whatever themes we want. And there are a lot of mm -hmm. conversations to be had that aren't focused on in major conferences. And this way we've, we've broken it up so that we have three different styles of talks, um, you know, that people can submit based on what they are needing, based on the projects they're working on, um, the place they are in their sort of career. And then it can also give people the opportunity, undergrads in philosophy, um, grad students, independent scholars, just really anyone can see what conference presentations are like. Um, so we have our first talk mm -hmm. is, you know, as we said, based off the APA, <laughs> right? They have this kind of traditional, you talk for 25 minutes, present a paper, someone comments on that. Um, and then there's the Q&A period where you get a lot of feedback and, and it's a little more formal. And for a lot of grad students, that can be a really fantastic opportunity as they're going forward, um, trying mm -hmm. to make a name for themselves, but not yet having the opportunity to present in the APA. Um, and then the second type of talk is this workshop talk, the, the coffee hour talk that is a lot more casual because I went to, um, a talk recently and Jen or went to a conference recently and Jen talked about having really awesome experiences at conferences where it really is just a workshop. You know, you come with a kind of half-baked idea, here's my abstract, this is what I'm working with, and the majority of the conversations then are trying to help you develop it. People are asking questions about it. Um, and that can be really, really mm -hmm. fantastic um, for folks who are just in, in the process of developing papers. 
Um, so we have that opportunity. And then the last one is this colloquium talk, which is an hour long talk and then an hour of Q&A. Um, and this is geared more towards late career grad students and um, you know, early career faculty, adjuncts, folks like that. Um, because the idea is a lot of people go onto the job market, have to give job talks, and these are supposed to be an hour long, and nobody's ever really had that opportunity to share their work for an hour. That's such a long period of time. Um, so that, that's kind of the idea, is that you know, it has different yeah. opportunities for what different people need, um, different topics for different interests, and hopefully that will draw lots of different people in who wouldn't be able to have access to you know, traditional conference settings and give opportunities to people who wouldn't necessarily have those opportunities otherwise, or at least not yet. Mm -hmm. So a little bit of that virtue ethics, you're giving people a chance to <laughs> habituate themselves into these various types of activities that they have to, these various hoops they have to jump through for our profession. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. And I really love in y'all's material how much you're talking about accessibility and the way that conferences can often be um, difficult for a lot of folks to have access to when they're in person, which can be an exclusionary element for a lot of um, individuals. And I'm, I'm curious if y'all think that there's going to be more transition broadly speaking towards more of these online conference kinds of formats or if you think that you know inertia or maybe good reasons will drag us back towards the old ways um when it's safe again to do so do you have your thoughts on that jen i mean i hope so i what what i would like to see um is you know when it's safe again opportunities to do the old-fashioned thing again because there are of course um, amazing benefits to in-person interactions that you just, even under the best circumstances, you really can't replicate over Zoom. But that being mm -hmm. said, it just seems like there's no reason to not also have, um, you know, conference talks being streamed by Zoom and, you know, lecturers having the opportunity to attend via Zoom, either because um, they are not in a financial position to easily travel or for other sorts of physical accessibility concerns. It just seems like the sort of prospects and mm -hmm. opportunities for accessibility were always there and we just weren't using them. Mm -hmm. And we have so much more familiarity or familiarity with them now and just, just so much more recognition of how easy it is that I hope we see more sort of hybridized formats for going forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then there's, of course, the, the added concern folks have mentioned about things like uh, travel to conferences being an unnecessary contribution to climate change. Yes. Um, ways that we can we can offset those kinds of issues as well. But I am, of course, I think sympathetic to the, the potential, especially somewhat, not like fully intangible, but somewhat liminal costs that um, come along with the fully online format. I know a lot of teachers this past semester sort of were noting how there isn't that sort of in-between spaces, you know, where no one's talking and you ran, run into a random person and have a conversation or, or make a connection um, or something like that. Um, so it, it sounds like y'all are trying to have some way for that kind of stuff to be happening 
in this in these conferences alongside of the more structured stuff is that is that fair yeah i think the idea is that we're hoping that in between we've got about an hour scheduled if we can actually keep to time hour scheduled between the sessions and we're hoping that people do what mm-hmm. we naturally do which is to head to twitter um and just mm-hmm. you know or our group chats and just talk to each other we've already got the social networks in place at least a lot of us do um and those who aren't mm-hmm. already part of it but you know attend the conference and decide they sort of want in on the conversation um it, it would be you know free and available for them to join if they so chose Mm-hmm. That's cool. One of the things I was actually curious about, and this was something that I'm shamelessly ripping off of the Skeptics in the Pub folks, but they do, um, when they do their, their weekly Skeptics in the Pub, they do an after party kind of thing on Zoom where it's just like a Zoom hangout where people can, can break off into small groups. Have y'all, are y'all considering it all maybe sort of having that unstructured uh, after hours uh, time available to folks who have attended the the daily conferences i mean i think that really we're we're pretty flexible with how how things are going to be run um you mm-hmm. know we we want to be responsive to what people are interested in and that's why we have the hour in between so that if you know folks want to keep talking past past the session time if there's this kind of conversation that that sparks up that there's space for that um so yeah i mean I think that that's part of the benefit of it is we can just keep the Zoom rooms open, right? And and people can chat mm-hmm. with one another and continue to ask questions and see face to face other people they've seen on Twitter or you know names they recognize from from scholarship and they can talk to them. Um, and there's there's not really mm-hmm. any pressure, right? There's there's no stress of having to walk up to a person and strike up conversation because it's already there right mm-hmm. yeah that makes sense so from, from what i saw it looked like the submission deadlines have passed for the first one is that correct yes that's have y'all consider are y'all extending those are you that's is that pretty much hard and passed at this point yeah so our first deadline um was january 6th for our january january 30th conference um mm-hmm. and then we'll have our second uh, conference probably six to eight weeks after um, so probably sometime mid-March or so uh, so we'll have another deadline open for for that okay are there specific sort of themes or anything that y'all are interested in with these submissions or is it really sort of anything across the the kind of realm of the philosophy world um, Jen yeah um, so we tried to create um well so like Hafty was saying when we first got together to talk about this the original idea was just to have a one-off sort of conference we were trying to think about mm-hmm. what we would want to sort of encourage when it came to themes and that's we got so excited about all the things we wanted to do that we we figured mm-hmm. actually maybe it would be cool if we just did a series um but the first one uh i don't know who needs to hear this but is going to be structured around the idea that there are some really important philosophical figures and very important philosophical traditions that have uh, not been given sort of sufficient attention by the philosophical canon. And Mm -hmm. this will be an opportunity for us to hear about the work of some of these people or the sort of big questions asked by some of these traditions 
by people in our in our Twitter community who actually are working on them. So we're kind of excited about mm-hmm. that. So basically, the idea of this first set for the first workshop is that um, all the talks will will relate to something um, that's kind of non-orthodox philosophy in the sense that it's been excluded from the canon, um, the traditionally like mm-hmm. Western, very white male canon. The next one is uh, OK Boomer. What can the ancients, or sorry, can the ancients tell us anything about today? Which is going mm-hmm. to be asking, it's just right up Cassie's alley, actually. <laughs> um, <laughs> asking questions about, you know, what's the relevance of ancient philosophy to us now? Um, you know, we're in the midst of um, a very historic moment where it's sort of every day a different corner of the world seems to be burning around us. And, um, or at least I think a lot of people feel that way. And, uh, as students of philosophy, I think it's, it's a genuine, um, question to ask, like, you know, what's the value of reading the old texts when we're, we're, we're kind of confronting such new problems. Mm -hmm. So that will be the theme broadly of the second workshop. And which, as Cassie said, is probably going to be in uh, March and then somewhere around there. And then the third one that we have on the docket is uh, this, but unironically, philosophical (laughs) hot takes, uh, which is going Mm -hmm. to be an opportunity for people to uh, send submissions of papers or talks that they want to give where they defend a idea in philosophy like panpsychism, for example, is a very salient to a lot of people on Fossey Twitter <laughs> as an idea that for some people is just dismissible out of hand. Um, and that there's, you know, other sorts of examples of this where uh, people will take a unpopular idea and try to make their best case for it. Be like, no, this actually, I actually do like this idea and this is why. And um, uh-huh. We're hoping that we can get, you know, a, a cool range of submissions for all three of those, those workshops. So, so let me get this straight, right? So the three things you're doing in this first conference, you've got heterodox ideas, why the classics are valuable, and hot takes. Is this really an IDW conference? Is that <laughs> what I'm picking up on here? Oh, no. I mean, it's cool. I think you should totally steal off their grift. I think that's a great move. It's heterodox is really hot right now, so I'm not I'm not opposed to the idea. I'm just noticing common themes. No, uh, it sounds like a lot of fun, and I, I do think they are really good topics. Um, and I'm very sympathetic to the use of of both uh, the ancients and the news for the sake of um, trying to address these kinds of problems. I imagine, given that you haven't decided on who's speaking yet, you're probably not able to say too much about like more details of specific uh um suggest like things that have been uh submitted so far are there any things that um you're hoping to hear about in particular perhaps cassie do you feel like you have anything that you want to uh you want to see show up in all of this well i i don't want to give spoilers um uh, yeah, I know it's so tricky because i want to i want to hear more about the content but i know you can't prejudge anything yeah i mean so i, I was reading over the submissions this morning and you know they're fantastic I, i'm i'm excited about all of them and some of them uh i i'm familiar with others i know nothing about i'm excited about the number of women um that that came mm-hmm. up i'm excited 
about um, some Eastern philosophy tradition uh, conversations that were brought up. So there's, there's definitely some, some exciting topics that, about folks that we, we don't really talk about. Um, you know, there's, there's mm -hmm. one figure, um, Mary Shepard, who, you know, all of her extant literature can pretty much be read in a weekend, um, secondary literature, I mm -hmm. mean. And really people are just now starting to, to give her some sort of focus. And so folks like her are really fascinating and situate really closely with big figures like Hume, like um, Locke, you know, who were her contemporaries. So, you know, I, I think that it's, it's going to be really fantastic. And for some folks, there's going to be familiarity with um, at least the context mm -hmm. that these folks are working in um, without it being completely new. So there's some familiar... Um, some things that are familiar and then some pieces that are definitely going to be new to folks. So mm -hmm. so what is y'all's role going to be during the actual conferences themselves? Are y'all going to be emceeing and, and like, um, you know, managing specific interactions or are you be mostly sort of putting out technical fires and making sure that Zoom is working properly or how do you envision your roles in this, um, Jen, maybe? Yeah. Um, kind of both. <laughs> so I think um, how we're thinking of it is that we will sort of function as the chairs of the sessions, um, as well as mm -hmm. the sort of uh, <laughs> the technical firefighters. Um, but hopefully there won't be too many technical fires. <laughs> I would say. Yeah, fingers crossed. <laughs> will you be? Y'all won't be submitting anything of your own, or trying to sit on sit in on one of the panels or anything like that. Um, so I wouldn't. I would not be opposed at all to hearing from Cassie in our second workshop, um, if I <laughs> say so myself. Um, so I, I don't think that, at least as far as I'm concerned, that we've ruled out the idea of us um, contributing in a sort of substantive way to the, the workshops but that certainly won't happen this first time around mm -hmm. fair enough um so let's see other things i want to ask i'm curious do y'all have just sort of broadly speaking any kind of uh advice or or thoughts for other very online philosophers who are sort of coping with these particularly trying times do you um have any sense of of what is working or what is not for folks at this point out there in the world i mean i think that just reaching out to people is is really effective lately um mm -hmm. you know i i was teaching over zoom this past semester and spring semester and it was awful um i i'm sure many people had that experience of just nobody has their cameras on nobody's very expressive um and and that can be can make zoom feel like a very dark frightening place um but you know there are lots of reading groups happening over zoom there are work groups that people have been doing um i did one this morning that i just kind of set out a hey i'm going to do pomodoro for a couple hours if anyone wants to jump on zoom with me and i had a bunch of people take me up on it and we all kind of sat and did work and then we would take a break and chat a bit and that was a really fantastic, pretty organic feeling social environment while also giving some structure. Um, and I yeah, it was awesome. Similarly. I, yeah, go ahead. Can I just like chime in on that real quick, Cassie? Because yeah. I just woke up, of course, you know, first things first, looking at Twitter. 
and um <laughs> and I saw that and I was like you know what like I'm gonna do that um that sounds fun and also like or at least I'm gonna ask I'm gonna shoot her a DM be like hey is there room left for one more um and it was really cool it was a sense of accountability for me it got me out of bed and um it's cool to see some you attach some like real life faces to uh you know a twitter handle and we're hoping that mm-hmm. um that listing is an effect of our conference as well but like i just want to fully endorse this idea of just sort of ad hoc uh getting you know organizing these like little one-off work parties or just hang out um, because there's no reason for us not to hang out with each other it's not as if you know the physical distance is um an excuse anymore yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, as Jen said earlier, there is this sense of solidarity. I mean, all of us are going through a global pandemic together. We're all struggling with a lot of the same issues. Um, so reaching out mm-hmm. to people and just being like, hey, you seem like an interesting person or, hey, I am interested in your work. Can we talk about it? Um, and I think that people are more receptive than ever to sort of cold calling like that. Um, it's It's been mm-hmm. a really lovely way to meet people and talk about things. And, um, you know, so I, I think that I just really encourage reaching out to people in maybe kind of seemingly awkward ways, uh, because I think that everybody's yearning for new engagements and ways to, mm-hmm. to break up this same day we're living over and over again. I'm curious. That, I think that's good advice. And I'm curious how you square it with something that I, I struggle with in the internet world, which is sort of the difficulty of knowing who's a good person to reach out to, in ter- especially in terms of like a lot of the controversy stuff that's going on. So like the flip side of the solidarity you're describing is that I feel like there's sort of minefields of social issues strewn throughout philosophy Twitter. And, you know, I can interact with somebody and get a message 10 minutes later, fi- you know, finding out all sorts of information about that person that I wasn't aware of that um, might make that kind of interaction potentially more complicated. And then there's sort of the out in the open stuff about issues like uh, stock and the trans, uh, the open letter exchanges that are going on. I'm curious what your thoughts are for um, especially younger philosophers who are trying to understand if like, should they be taking stands on things? Should they be, you know, staying clear of the larger accounts who could make their lives much harder or something like that? Do y'all have any sort of feelings about that? Jen, do you feel like we have an obligation to uh, stand up and fight with people on Twitter, even if they have much more sort of clout in various forms? I think in some cases, the answer to that question is yes. Um, I, I think, I mean, anybody who follows me, um, probably already knows this, but I've been quite vocal on some of these things, partially for the reason that I feel um, part of my positioning um, enables me to at least somewhat be protected from some backlash. Although, I mean, not really. In, in some ways, um, you know, being a grad student itself is a sort of vulnerable um, position to be in. That being said, of course, I think people need to be honest with themselves about how much is at stake for them. And if they are in a vulnerable community or vulnerable um, group, for example, and they really do already face significant hurdles to being taken seriously in academia or, you know, their job prospects are um, bad, 
not just the way that all of our job prospects are bad, but bad due to like pretty systemic um, discriminatory, like discriminatory reasons, um, or I mean, they just really are not in a position to deal with um, a lot of potentially um, dramatic backlash on Twitter. I think that that it's within um, people's discretion to some extent to decide that that's not for them. But on the other hand, I think if, you know, the last Twitter, the last year on Twitter has shown us anything, it's that there are a lot of people who are in a relatively safe position um, who have just not talked about things because they just didn't want to deal with the drama. And I think that those people probably do have obligations to say something, um, especially if they're in a position to uh, dislodge an implication um, coming from the silence that something really problematic that's being said is representative of the community of philosophers at large, uh, when really it's it's just the the view of a very vocal um, community, you know, very vocal minority that people just don't want to. They're hoping if they just ignore them, they'll go away. Hmm. Cassie, do you have anything you want to add there? Yeah, I mean, I think that it's always a difficult balance to strike. Um, but I think that, you know, as Jen said earlier, the sort of nature of Twitter is that as you're saying things, engaging with people, you do get a message, say, hey, just so you know, that person, you know, has these problematic views or you, you learn new things about them and, you know, you, you adjust accordingly, right? And I think that, you know, we all make missteps and so long as we're engaging with good faith and understanding that, you know, there are certainly people who are not engaging in good faith pretty consistently. Um, and it, I think, becomes pretty quickly apparent which individuals those are and, you know, using your best judgment. But I think that really there are a lot of really kind, thoughtful people um, who are doing their best and, you know, misstep here and there. But it is fairly easy to weed out the ones who are pretty aggressive and, and saying problematic things and being being silent on very important issues or even worse, being vocal uh, on issues in, in really harmful ways that I think those things become apparent uh, fairly quickly. Mm -hmm. And if they're not, then then people let you know or, or call you out and you know, with how fast paced things are, the the kind of blessing and curse of that is if if you make a misstep and you connect with someone that maybe you shouldn't have, um, you know, you, you learn quickly, you get called out, and then it kind of moves on, um, which is good in I some ways say and that, bad in others. Yeah, I was going to say the exact same thing, that the fast-paced nature of it is, I think, I mean, in, a, in some ways it's a curse, as you say, but um, it's definitely a blessing in this respect, because I think my sort of mantra philosophy Twitter and Twitter more generally is just to not is to try not to take myself too seriously um, that we're just, like all going to mess up and if like if you just try to engage with good faith and you just try to be like oh I'm well I'm sorry I'll delete that or oops and then nobody's nobody's gonna remember it you know unless you know you're consistently doing bad things that you like are doubling down on you know in the face of you know really 
sharp and compelling criticism, you know, nobody's going to remember um, for the most part. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a forgiving nature of this environment in a that's like really important, even if in the moment it sort of feels like it's like charged and everything's happening really fast. There's sort of long-term forgivingness mm-hmm. of it, but I, at least for me, I find it easier to try to promote in myself the sort of uh, like not taking myself too seriously so that if I do make a misstep, I can try to just acknowledge it and be better moving forward. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. I'm I'm sympathetic to the greater sort of forgiveness, and I think something that uh, folks, you know, the anti woke folks have been very critical towards the wokies about is um, sort of not providing viable paths to redemption in that kind of way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I am somewhat sympathetic to those criticisms, though I'm also, as always, as, as all good philosophers, I'm sympathetic to both sides of, of a lot of these situations. <laughs> um, but it's interesting because I, I, as you were talking, as y'all were talking about sort of describing the world of philosophy Twitter a little bit more, I was thinking back to, and this is a little um, inside Twitter, I apologize, but there was the image going around a little while ago where folks had taken the sort of list of uh, philosophers and done a like map of philosophy Twitter. Um, and then that map had been sort of described and subdivided into sections like the grad hangout lounge and like woke Twitter and papal uh, philosophy Twitter and the IDW and such like that. Um, and I'm curious, is that does that track with sort of your experience of Twitter that it is very sort of uh, tribalized or, or sort of isolated into these communities to some extent um, and that, you know, so one other impression that I get alongside that, and I'm curious if this is your feeling as well, that there is sort of a, a, a sense that like um, grad student uh, lounge Twitter and like woke Twitter are like one very online section of Twitter who are in a fairly sort of heated conflict with the kind of anti-woke and IDW sections of philosophy Twitter um, in a kind of... Uh, a culture war that seems like it is having substantial impacts on our actual field. Um, I'm curious if that is sort of been your experiences as well. Cassie, maybe you want to start? Yeah. I mean, I, when that map came out, I was kind of amazed at how many people were on there and how many areas. I just had no idea what was going on over there. Um, and that, hmm. you know, so many of the people I engaged with were just in this little tiny corner of the map. Um, such that I, I really have no idea what's going on in other parts. So, I mean, that's that's part of the, the social media bubble that happens, right? You follow people you're interested in, and they're going to follow people they're interested in, and that often loops up, right? Um, but mm-hmm. I think that there is something hopeful about a lot of the grad students I've engaged with on Twitter and, you know, the, the woke folks, if you will, that there are people that are trying to change the field for the better and trying to address some of the the major issues that we're facing and trying to make it a better community and more accessible and um, you know not not just diverse but inclusive of everyone in ways mm-hmm. that philosophy has traditionally not been so I think that in that way I, I'm kind of hopeful that there is a reflection in the field of what we're seeing on philosophy Twitter, um, 
you know, that, that there are a lot of young folks who are hopeful and are demanding better conditions and, and proper treatment and thinking about things in, in ways that I think, you know, I don't want to okay boomer it, but a lot of older, more traditional mm. um, folks in the field aren't necessarily thinking about it. Um, so I think that there is, there is hope and there's something good about it, but it also, there could be a break there that it's just, you know, these are online ramblings. We're all fighting on the internet and really it doesn't matter. Um, so I, I kind of waffle back and forth on it. Yeah, and that really gets quite at what I was sort of pondering, which is, you know, much like you look at Twitter, you might get an impression that there's a lot more progressive energy in the world than if you look at the election results in America, for example, right? That like Twitter is not real life in that particular version, in that particular sense is the way that some people um, put that. And I wonder if if there's something similar going on with philosophy Twitter that like to, to I guess, um, refer to one of the arch individuals of philosophy twitter who a lot of folks are fans with right brian lighter i think was you know recently commenting that people who spend a lot of time on twitter have poor career prospects or something like that and, I, and like you know the concern that i have is that like right right de minimis right people um but like there could be a reality where you know people's activity on twitter is getting sort of low-key scrutinized by departments in a way that um, undercuts their ability to get into positions where they are actually able to enact more substantive change. I don't know. What do you think, Jen? Um, yeah, it's like, I think it's a natural worry to have. Um, and it's one that motivated me sort of for a while being not sure how active I wanted to be on Twitter. Um, but I, mm -hmm. on the flip side, I think two things. One, um, in, in a lot of ways, Philosophy Twitter just really is um, real, like especially the grad student lounge corner of that map is quote unquote real life mm -hmm. in the sense that a lot of people in that community actually are no longer in like affiliated academic philosophy. They're people who um, studied philosophy either in undergrad or, um, you know, went to grad school for a while and then left or completed their program and then tried to be on the job market for a while and then um, decided to pursue um, non-academic careers and I think there's a clear at least in part causal connection between sort of the as you say the sort of like woke versus the IDW people like risk is that you know a lot of the voices in our particular corner of philosophy twitter are voices trying to describe the sorts of forces that push them out of philosophy ways that were really problematic they're very real and salient to us in ways that you know they just wouldn't be if you're just hanging out in philosophy departments all day um so i think that that's mm -hmm. something that is mm -hmm. uh a real benefit and is like, deeply important for and I, I i see as for me a deeply valuable part of being on philosophy twitter as a as a graduate student and more mm -hmm. more directly to the concern about job prospects um first it's like i just don't really have a sense that there's any like like empirical evidence that this is getting in the way of people's job prospects but mm -hmm. in, i don't know about that P perhaps perhaps there, there are instances of this but my much more common impression by a long shot is that people are having um 
they're getting opportunities through Twitter that they just absolutely wouldn't have. Uh, Cassie was describing this about her Nicotian ethics reading group earlier, that you can just Mm -hmm. all of a sudden have, you know, professors at XYZ universities reading your your work in progress because you tweeted about it and they asked you for a draft um, or, you know, whatever, in ways that I think have to have non-trivial um Mm-hmm. influences on you know what what your standing is quote-unquote academically and in the discipline and whether people know your name um whether people have know i mean whether they know that you work on this particular topic if they're trying to figure out who to send some you know a, uh, an article to for to referee those are all things that could be mm-hmm. facilitated by twitter much more rapidly and in, i think much more um justly and in, in the sense that there are people whose affiliations aren't giving them bumps in the way that they do in real life quote unquote because nobody really cares about what your affiliation is it, on twitter um you know if you work on you, you're known as working on aristotle and that's not necessarily for you know being at some i think as brian Leiter said uh what he, I forget exactly what he called them, but like non-reputable programs. That's right. <laughs> I mean, not, not in the approved philosophy department. Yeah, I'm at <laughs> Iowa, which has a fantastic placement rate, but it's not PGR top 50. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, I, I chose it for intentional reasons and things and got into other programs, but still chose it. But, you know, people say, oh, Iowa, that's a good program, but those who really care about elite status and things like that, Iowa on my, um, you know, certificate isn't going to give me a head up against someone with Yale or Harvard or Stanford or, um, you know, any of the top, quote unquote, top programs. So, Mm -hmm. but on the other hand, I mean, I did a Twitter thread, right, um, this past week on an interpretation of Aristotle's The Anima 3.5. And it was kind of a joke. And then I was like, you know what? No, I'm going to commit to this hard. And I did a bunch of research and put a lot of effort <laughs> into it and spent you know, two hours writing it. And then I had Aristotle scholars engaging with it. Um, you know, Caleb Coho, I am in a reading group with him, but he sent me a paper that he had that would be helpful with it. And he commented and said a bunch of helpful things. And Aristotle himself on Twitter commented on it and <laughs> had hints to say. And he's a good guy. Yeah, yeah, I I appreciate him quite a a bit. (laughs) (laughs) Friend of the show. (laughs) So it's been, you know, I I have those opportunities to get my work, quote unquote, work in progress um, engaged with in ways that we really only have one ancient scholar at Iowa. Um, So it's, it's, and she does different Mm. things. She doesn't focus on Aristotle as much. So having that opportunity to engage with Aristotle scholars, to engage with people in AI ethics, working on, you know, actually developing things um, in ways that our departments don't really offer and we don't really have the name recognition to pull weight with, just sending cold emails to people. So I think there's really something fantastic about that part of it. I agree. I think those are really good final points. I realize we're running short on time, um, and I think those are uh, the the best positive cases that can be made for the continued existence (laughs) of philosophy Twitter. Uh, And I have to, of course, subject you all to the enlightening round. So this is the enlightening round. 
Enlightenment comes from within. So for folks who are not familiar, I'm going to give you a list of things. The two of y'all are going to tell me, are those things real or not real? Those are your only options. You don't get to hedge. You don't get to explain what you mean by real or not real. Uh, for our purposes of deciding who's going to go first, I'm going to flip a coin, um, and Jen's going to call it for us. So, Jen, heads or tails? Heads. Okay. It is heads. So, Jen, you will be going first, and Cassie okay. will be going second. All right. Are y'all ready? Yeah. I'd love All right. <laughs> Good. As a, the full terror in the ranks. I like it. All right. So to get us started, Jen, is anything real? Yes. Real. Okay. Cassie? Real. Okay. Let's find out what's real. Is the external world real? Real. Real. Okay. Are colors real? Still there, Jen? Sorry, yeah. I want to head so bad. <laughs> um, We're on the second one. <laughs> um, uh, real. Okay. Yeah, real. All right. Phenomenal consciousness. Real. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, oh, geez. Phenomenal consciousness. And we can't Some ask, philosopher we can't ask, like, what do you mean by that? We can't ask. <laughs> nope. <laughs> all right. All right. Yeah, it's real. <laughs> okay. Free will. Not real. Not real. Uh, selves or persons? Oh. <laughs> um, real. <laughs> real. Yeah, real. <laughs> Genders? Real. Yeah, real. Races? <sighs> um, yeah, I mean, I guess for the same reasons, real. Uh-huh. Cassie? Mm -hmm. Not real. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Species? Uh, not real. You said species? Mm-hmm. Real. Mm, interesting. <laughs> Morality. Real. Real. Rights. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I'm so going to get in trouble without being able to explain. Um... <laughs> not real. Mm. Ooh. Yeah. Yeah, not real. <laughs> I hear a little bit influence there, I think. Uh, knowledge. <laughs> Real. Real. God or gods? Okay, my official position on this is, I don't know. <laughs> so, uh, um, real. Not okay. real. Not real. Mm. Society? Real. Real. Money. Real. Yeah, yeah, I'll go with real. Okay, numbers. Real. 
Yeah. <laughs> Sounds so mad. Yeah. I know. I'm just apparently just like my ontology is just huge. I guess. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> uh, I like the idea of money being real, but numbers not. But numbers um, not being, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but I suppose real, yeah. Okay. Fictional characters. <sighs> I'm going real. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Fictionalism. Let's do it. All right. I always like it when it's when God's not real, but fictional characters are. It's one of my yeah. favorite ones. Um, a hole, like a hole in the ground. Real. <laughs> I'm trying to be consistent in my, my standard here. <laughs> You're doing great. I'm just thinking, what would Aristotle say? <laughs> no cheating off of Aristotle. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I I think I messed up on the Aristotelian gods answer. Um, uh, wait, holes, holes. Yeah, yeah, let's go with holes are real. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, chairs? Real. Mm-mm. You know what? Let's go not real. Mm, sandwiches? Yeah. Okay, I should go back and say that I guess I think rights are real based on what my standard for realness is. Stop going, stop going back. <laughs> not like a test where you get to change your answers or something. Oh, no. <laughs> sandwiches, real or no? Sandwiches? Mm-hmm. Yeah, sandwiches are real. Mm-hmm. Now, whether there's some determinate extension of sandwiches. <laughs> no, 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 no. Cassie, the sandwich is real. <laughs> uh, yes cares no sandwiches yes <laughs> okay great uh science i think you're maybe, actually you're one of the very few people who says one yes to one and no to the other congratulations <laughs> oh um, thank you science real or not real jen yes real okay yeah real okay natural laws <laughs> yes real not real. <laughs> totally failing as an Aristotelian. Uh, I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Sorry, what was that? A uh, beauty is beauty real? Oh yeah, beauty's real. Yeah. Love. Love is real. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Causality. <laughs> <laughs> yes, real. I really want to be a bad Aristotelian here, but yeah, I guess we'll go real. Okay. And finally, time. Ooh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> this is a cruel game. Um, it's the best game. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess it's real. Hard yes. Hard real. Definitely real. All right, y'all have survived the enlightening round. How do you feel? <laughs> I feel like I have so many words to say. Yeah, yep, same. Yep. <laughs> yep. That's pretty much the way that works. Wow. It's, it's an exquisite kind of torture. It's super weird that it works so effectively, <laughs> consistently. It really is. Oh, God, yeah. yeah. It makes ev all of your impulses as a philosopher just like you can't indulge any of them. <laughs> no. No, you, it's right. You want to turn to drink like halfway through it. I don't understand it. It's so wild. Uh, wow. But your answers were thoroughly satisfying. The void appreciates your suffering. 
Well, we're glad, glad we're to very be. glad to have been here. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much for having us on. No, this has been fun. Jen, Cassie, do you want to let folks know where they can find the uh, various things we've been discussing one more time? Yeah, um, that's a great idea. So if you want to learn more about our workshop series, the Cochito Philosophy Twitter um, workshop series, go to www.cogtweeto.com, cotweeto.com. Um, and you can also follow us on Twitter at Cochito Series. So at Cotuito series. Great. And you all want to share your personal Twitters as well, since Twitter is such an important community for us to all be involved in. Yeah, I'm um, at angry underscore Cassie. Angry like the emotion underscore C-A-S-S-I-E. And I'm at Philosso underscore Foster. Philosopher. Great. Great. And we'll have all that in the show notes, but always good to, to shout it out there as well. So uh, thank you all very much. This has been a lot of fun and good luck with the conferences. I'm looking forward to being there. Yeah, yeah, thank you so, so much. much. It's been awesome. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you. But as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. As always, I'd like to thank our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Thanks to our new patrons, Rib Clone, uh, The Foundation Pit, and Yolana. Uh, at the Avout level, and our newest Archon, Duke. And all the void thanks to our Archon and Archduke level patrons. Fix the vote, just barely outrunning being pecked to death by lame ducks. Jude Law's Canadian accent in Existence makes my pussy throb. I want to be the tempeh in a Foucault and Camus sandwich. David Maslich, Chad T, Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman, and the creepy void eyes thank you all so very much if you'd like to support the show please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app follow us on twitter at etv pod and if you notice a small void growing within you consider supporting us financially at patreon.com embrace the void just four dollars a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus book club content most of all and I cannot stress this enough. You are the void, and the void is you. Thank you.